Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, March 27th, 2021. Right now it is Wednesday morning, March 24th, and once again we have our friend Truthfids here with us to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. Having finally completed our discussion of particular passages in Paul's epistles, where certain terms are either mistranslated or misunderstood, we now hope to do that same thing in regard to the so-called Catholic epistles, which itself is an errant church term for the epistles of James, Peter, and Jude. Like Paul's writings, there also have been many errors of interpretation or blatant mistranslations than we find in the Gospel accounts or the Revelation in these epistles, which caused the New Testament itself to be misunderstood. But while James is usually reckoned as the first of these epistles, we will reserve it for later and begin with 1 Peter. I probably should have begun with James, but we'll begin with 1 Peter. Hello, Truthfits. Thank you for joining us once again. Hey, Bill. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, uh, yeah, we're on to Peter now. And uh, in this epistle, you can see that he's he finally gets it. He, he fully understands, you know, Christ's ministry and where the Israelites are. He's older. He's wiser. He, he's probably got a few gray hairs. And, um, you know, he's even alluding to Paul's ministry. And in this epistle, he actually states who he's writing to, like the locations that clearly show that he's only writing to Europeans, uh, just like Paul was only going to Europeans. And everything in the epistle identifies them as Israelites. And we'll see the same in the other epistles. But yeah, so so yeah, that that's all I have to say for this intro. Okay, these are specific New Testament verse misteachings, mistranslations, or corruptions in the epistles of Peter and James. And there are really only a few. And we will talk about the epistle of Jude in a couple of weeks in a different in a from a different perspective, because there aren't a lot of significant mistranslations in Jude. There are a lot of misunderstandings, but we will let that stand on its own in the near future, as well as Second Peter chapter 2 that we won't really get into here. But these two epistles to Peter were, if you actually re- sit down and read them carefully, it's quite evident that they were written to the same audience, that his second epistle was more or less a follow-up of this first epistle written to the same people. And even though it's written in a different style, there are probably good reasons for that, but it's clearly addressing the same people. And we don't really know if any of these churches had responded to Peter, but there must've been a reason why he wrote that second epistle to them in, in order to clarify himself in certain aspects of what he had said here. And and he said that in the opening of, of Second Peter chapter 3, it says, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you. 
So by that, and, and that's where he spoke about the importance of the epistles of Paul. And that to me proves that the Peter that the people that Peter is addressing here are people, they're all in Anatolia. All these places that he mentions are provinces in Anatolia. And they're all to people of churches, which Paul or Paul's own um, followers had founded. Because there's no record of Paul going to, say, Pontus or Bithynia. Although he must have traveled through those places in his journeys on foot through Anatolia as he went from Cappadocia and, and from Tarsus and Antioch in Syria, he would walk through Anatolia. And we only hear about his frequent stops in Galatia and, and other places in Western Anatolia. We don't hear much about Bithynia and Pontus, but those provinces were also by the time, by the end of the first century AD, those provinces also contained tens of thousands of people that had been converted to Christianity to the point where Pliny the Younger, Pliny the Younger was actually the governor of Pontus and Bithynia for the Romans. He was the governor of of a province made from, created from those areas. And he actually wrote back to the emperor in Rome. I think it was Trajan. And he, he said there were so many Christians here. He, he speculated having to execute tens of thousands of people because of, of their um, disobedience to the religious rules of the Romans. Well, for which they would, if you didn't sacrifice to the emperor, and if you didn't pledge your allegiance to the emperor, which Christians would not do, then they were liable to be executed. And that's why they were executing martyrs. And Pliny speculated, Pliny the Younger, in his letters, which survive to this day, had, had speculated having to execute thousands of people in Pontus and Bithynia. And these are the people that Peter is writing to here as he opens this epistle. Peter opened his first epistle with the following salutation. As the King James Version has, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers, and that's where we're going to focus here this morning is on that words for stranger, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, Pontus and Bithynia were regions of Anatolia that were near the Black Sea that we don't read a lot about in the book of Acts or in Paul's epistles. Cappadocia is in eastern Anatolia. Tarsus was in Cilicia, and Cappadocia would be I believe, just north of Calicia, I'm fairly certain. It may have been north and west of Calicia. Cappadocia was a rather large district. But Cappadocia was just north of Calicia. And one thing I did not put into my notes here, which perhaps I may have, 
is a citation from Strabo talking about white Syrians. And he said, I don't know why they call them white Syrians, as if there were any black ones, because there were no black Syrians, right? They were all white. But it seems that Cappadocia was, it, it had a much more varied climate and received much more harsher winters, a lot more snow than the regions of Syria in Palestine or, or above Palestine. So it seems that Strabo making that statement was actually speaking in reference to Syrians in Cappadocia, but there were also a lot of Scythians in Cappadocia at his time. So was Peter really writing to strangers? The Greek word for stranger here is parepidemos, which is an adjective defined by Liddell and Scott as sojourning in a strange place, especially as a substantive, where they cite Genesis chapter 23, verse 4, in the Septuagint, as well as the ancient historian Polybius. As a substantive, the adjective, meaning sojourning, would be nat translated naturally as sojourner. A substantive is a word or a group of words that are not normally nouns, but in a particular grammatical context are being employed as a noun, right? Like Christos is anointed, that's an adjective. But Christos is often employed as a noun referring to an anointed one, as in Christ, right? So Jesus Christ is Jesus Christos, and Christos is an adjective meaning anointed, but it's translated as a noun because often it stands alone as a reference to Christ. That's a substantive, a word that's not usually a noun, a word that grammatically is not a noun, but it's used as a noun in context, in, in many contexts, so, or in a certain context, I should say. So translating an adjective meaning sojourning, we probably shouldn't translate it as stranger. It would naturally be translated as sojourner, even if a sojourner may be a stranger in the eyes of those whom he is sojourning among. But Peter, if we imagine these people in, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, if we imagine them, to be natives of those districts, to have always been there. That's their land, right? And Peter is the outsider. This is the denominational Christian viewpoint, right? Peter is the outsider. He could not call them strangers. They're in their own land. He could not call them sojourners. If they're in their own land, he's the sojourner. So the denominational model here, their interpretation of this term, it doesn't work. How could you, being, being an Englishman, come to America and call me a stranger in my land when you're the one that's the sojourner? You're not going to call me a sojourner or a stranger. 
You're the one that's the stranger and the sojourner. You're in my land, right? I mean, how does that work? This model that the denominational churches have set up doesn't work because the word doesn't mean stranger as in somebody of a different race or tribe. There are other words for that. There's alogenes, which is somebody of another race, which we've seen that word appear in the Septuagint and in the Gospel of Luke. And then there's the word xenos, which means a stranger who is of a nation that's entitled to certain rights of hospitality. That's a xenos. So a xenos is actually a, a guest friend, technically. But those words are translated as stranger. The King James Version did us a great disservice by taking this word par epidemos and translating it as stranger. The word parepidemos is formed from two prepositions and a noun. The first preposition, para, is beside, while the second, epi, is on or upon. And the noun, demos, originally described a country or land, and it was later used of the people of a particular country or land, demos. And, and that's the origin of English words such as democracy. It was used to describe someone, parapidemos. The word parapidemos was used to describe someone who leaves his own land and travels in another country. It is a specific word with a specific meaning which cannot be generalized in English without leaving behind a good part of the writer's original intent. The word does not signify people who are strangers to Israel, which is what a denominational, which is what the denominational church doctrines suggest. It would be Peter who was who would have to describe himself as the stranger or as the par epidemos, because the people of Anatolia aren't coming into Judea. If they did, then they could be described as sojourners with this word par epidemos. But Peter is writing to them in their own lands. So they're not merely strangers to Peter or else he wouldn't be using this term. There's a greater meaning to this term. A parepidemos is someone who is living or dwelling besides others upon their land, in their country. It was used to describe someone who leaves his own land and travels in another country. So what does the word mean here? The word signifies people who were estranged from Israel, and who are dwelling elsewhere. That's the only way that Peter's use of this word here is proper and appropriate. That statement that they are par epidemos, or par epidemoi in, in the plural, can only be made of deported Israelites within the context of Scripture. And that is what the context 
of Peter's epistle here fully reflects. For example, Peter himself expresses his intention of this use of parepidemos as sojourner later in the same chapter by his use of a near synonym, paroikia, in reference to his readers in verse 17 of this same chapter, where the King James Version wrote, sojourning. They got it right there. There we read from 1 Peter 1.17, and if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, meaning without the status or stature of persons, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. And the word paroikia, according to Liddell and Scott, was also used to describe a sojourning in a foreign land. But it is a compound of the preposition para that we see in parepidemos and the noun oikia, which is a house or a dwelling. It's another form of the word oikos. So, so the... Um... The lands of Israel, uh, th that was the original <laughs> home, and now they were cast away and they were in lands that didn't really belong to them, right? Some of these were part of the Genesis 10 nations, and then they were just temporary staying there, right? Well, well, exactly. If you understand Genesis chapter 10, then you would understand that the lands that these people are inhabiting at this time, they had originally belonged to the Lydians and Aram and Tiras, which are the Thracians. The Lydians are Lud in Genesis chapter 10. And around the Black Sea to, to the um, Meshech and the Tubal, those people received those lands as their inheritance in Genesis chapter 10, and, and you even had the Hittites who, who included parts of Cappadocia as their original land, those people were ultimately displaced or at least dominated by these Israelites of the captivities. And Peter is writing to Israelites of the captivities, and he is properly describing them with this word par epidemos for that reason. But if these were in, and this is my point, if these people were indigenous, if that was always their land, then Peter would actually be pretty arrogant to consider them par epidemos. Be, be, with this word par epidemos, because it means sojourner. Peter would be the stranger. He would be the par epidemos if he were in their land. But you can't use this term to describe people who are dwelling in their own land that they've always possessed. So why is Peter using this term? Because they're Israelites dwelling in somebody else's land. That's why they are sojourners from Israel in the Assyrian captivity and in the other ancient dispersions or scatterings of the children of Israel.
That's why he's using this term. He's recognizing them as Israelites. And the rest of the context of this chapter proves that. And we will get into that as we discuss these mistranslations. So, Bill, could you just um, combine multiple words in Greek, sorry, just to make a whole a whole word, as we see it? Well, well, I mean, the Greeks very typically combined their prepositions with words to create to create a a, a more complex noun. They did that all the time, or a more complex adjective. They did it all the time. That is, the Greek language is replete with examples of that. In, in other words, um, krino is to judge, right? And the preposition dia means by or through. So diakrino means a distinction or a discernment. It's a, a, it's a, um, a conclusion arrived through judging right? So, so a diacrino is a judgment, a distinction, a discernment, and that, that's, yeah, even, even the English words, which come from a lot of Latin terms, are compound words that we don't really understand. Discern is a compound word in its original language. Even judgment is a compound word, right? Like apartment is a compound word. It's the state of being apart or divided into separate units. An object divided into separate units is an apartment. So we have apartment buildings, right? <laughs> Just like we have judgment when somebody judges. Language is complex, but yes, the, the Greeks often combined prepositions with adjectives or nouns to make other adjectives and nouns that were reflected more complex ideas if that makes sense. I hope it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So, another Greek word, which appears in 1 Peter chapter 1, was completely ignored by the King James translators. And since that word appears in the manuscripts of the majority text, I have no explanation for why it had been omitted. But it's totally missing from the translation. And that word is eclectus. That, that's another compound word, right? Eclectus is... That, that's, um, that's a long explanation. That's another digression. Eclectus means elect or chosen. It's an adjective. And it modifies, in the grammar of 1 Peter 1, verse 1, it modifies the substantive for sojourners. And therefore, it should be rendered as elect sojourners. Now, these words for sojourners that I've mentioned here that we see in 1 Peter 1, 1, which is parapidemus, and 1 Peter 1.17, which is par oikos, they both appear again together in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. So we'll discuss that verse towards the end of our presentation here. But this word eclectus, 
which means elect or chosen, is completely missing from the King James translation of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. And there's no reason for it. Why is it? Um, it's also missing from the New American Standard translation. There's another word here that I, I didn't plan on discussing, but I should probably give it brief mention as soon as I killed a mosquito on my monitor. I'm sorry. This word is scattered. To the strangers, scattered. This is to the sojourners, scattered. But it's really to the elect sojourners, scattered throughout these provinces. That word scattered, of course, is diaspora, diasporus, a word that the Jews love to make propaganda out of. But Peter's telling these Gentiles that they are the diasporus, and we will demonstrate that he's writing to non-Jews later on when we discuss other portions of this epistle. So these are elect sojourners, not just any sojourners. And they're sojourners. They are not indigenous residents of the areas where they are currently dwelling, as Peter wrote. And they're elect because they're Israelites, right? That's the whole point. Well, well, that's the point. We're going to prove that. And, and the context of the epistle proves that. There's another important passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, which reveals Peter's intended meaning of these terms. And that is found in verses 9 and 10, where he wrote, Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. And he goes on to speak of the promises of Christ found in those same prophets. So the salvation which is in Christ and the grace which accompanies that salvation are subjects of prophecy according to the words of Peter here. He's not referring to any other salvation and any other grace than what we see in the Old Testament prophets. And he himself is stating that very explicitly. But looking into the words of the Old Testament prophets, where Peter had written that the prophets had prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, we find promises of grace specifically and explicitly to the children of Israel. And there are no other such promises ever made to any other people anywhere in the books of the prophets. It is the children of Israel alone who are described as having been elect or chosen to receive this grace. 
Jeremiah chapter 31 contains an explicit promise of a new covenant for the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's the covenant Peter's writing about. That's the reason why Peter's writing. But first we read, as that chapter opens, in Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 1, At the same time, saith Yahweh, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus saith Yahweh, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. That's the only prophecy of grace in all the books of the prophets for a specific people in the future time, in the time future to the destruction of Israel and Judah and the captivities. There are prophecies of grace for the building of the second temple, but that's promises of grace for a building, not for a people. There's a difference. So this is the only prophecy of grace for people who are outside of the land of Israel because they are Israel taken into the wilderness in the Assyrian captivities. The people which were left to the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. And then we'll read one more verse of that chapter of Jeremiah, verse 3. Yahweh has appeared of old unto me, saying, Yeah, I have loved thee, in reference to Israel, with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Jeremiah wrote this no earlier than 640 B.C. or 620 B.C., I should say. And this was probably written because of its position in the book of Jeremiah. This was probably written as late as the 590s, five, perhaps 580s B.C., depending on the order of books you follow from the Septuagint or the Masoretic text, because the chapters of Jeremiah are out of order in the Masoretic text. There's a different order in the Septuagint, actually. This was probably written after the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem. So when Jeremiah wrote this is a very late time, and it's long after the Assyrian captivities of most of Israel and Judah perhaps as many as 160 years after those captivities had begun in 743 B.C. The reason why they needed grace was because they had suffered in the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities, and the reason they needed a new covenant was because they had forsaken and broken the old covenant, while Yahweh nevertheless had to keep the unconditional promises which he had made to Abraham. And that's the bit that's never taught in uh, any churches or any Christianity lessons, right? And that's the bit we really uh, have to emphasize. Absolutely, that's the piece we have to emphasize because that's the exact context 
of this epistle of Peter as Peter is writing it and as Peter himself is explaining it. And if we simply accept the definitions and application of the terms which Peter used, like that word par epidemos, not in relation to himself among those people, but in relation to those people in lands that they themselves are inhabiting, par epidemos, and, and this other, these other words here, elect, chosen, the grace that they would receive. And Peter says, as it was prophesied in the prophets, so we go back to the prophets and see those prophecies, everything, so many aspects of this add up that he is speaking to the dispersed children of Israel, the children of Israel who were dispersed up to 800 years before the time when he is writing. Peter's writing this epistle probably between 60 and 65 AD. That's my opinion. I have very um, valid and learned reasons for having that opinion. I believe that he's writing this, uh, this epistle as Paul had already been in prison or even executed. And therefore, that is why in 2 Peter chapter 3, he is underscoring the importance, not of Paul's ministry, because evidently Paul must have already been imprisoned or, or, or executed, but of Paul's e epistles. He's underscoring the importance of Paul's epistles to people who are in Christian assemblies that either Paul or his direct disciples, his students, had founded. So either Paul founded these assemblies Peter's writing to, or his disciples had, Titus and Timothy and, and men like that. So... That's who Peter's writing to. All those places in Anatolia which, in which Paul and his disciples had traveled. So without ignoring any Greek word, we must translate, if we want to be honest about it, right? We must translate the opening verses, the opening verses of 1 Peter chapter 1 to read, and I think I will read two verses here. Peter, or Petros, ambassador of Yahshua Christ, to the elect sojourners of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge. Now, Yahweh said to the children of Israel in Amos chapter 3, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquity. They're called to obedience in Christ. According to the foreknowledge of Father Yahweh, or God the Father, if you will, in a sanctification of the Spirit, in obedience. We're not, we can't sanctify the Holy Spirit, but we could sanctify our own in obedience 
and the sprinkling of the blood of Yahshua Christ. We can sanctify our own. Christ sanctifies us and he's cleansed us, but we have to separate ourselves from sin and the evil in the world and choose to be obedient to Christ. In this life, in the next life, we won't have a choice. In obedience and a sprinkling of the blood of Yahshua Christ, favor to you or grace to you, and peace being multiplied. That purpose, the purpose of that foreknowledge, is also expressed in the prophets. So we can only honestly conclude that these sojourners in the provinces of Anatolia, to which Peter wrote, were a portion of the scattered Israelites of more ancient times, and that Peter had written to these same people whom James had addressed in his only surviving epistle as the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. This will also be demonstrated in our next discussion, moving on to 1 Peter chapter 2. I don't know if you have anything to say about that. Yeah, do you think it was uh, primarily Paul that really opened their eyes as well to make it realize that all these nations and, and even the Romans were Israelites, e even though Peter had that dream, but, but Paul really uh, showed it to him? Yes, I believe so. I, I believe Peter, P Peter had the, the dream, the vision of Acts chapter 10, by which he was to take the gospel to the uncircumcised Israelites of the ancient diaspora, if I have to use the term that the Jews use, right? The ancient scatterings of, of the children of Israel. Okay, in order to understand that, we have to understand where Peter said, I have not ever eaten anything common or unclean. And God responded to Peter in Acts chapter 10 and said, do not, clean, do not consider common, it's not the word for unclean, there's a difference. Do not consider common what I have cleansed or what God has cleansed. In order to understand that, you have to, in turn, look back into the books of the prophets and see what it is that Yahweh God had promised to cleanse ostensibly on the cross of Christ. So what is cleansed by the blood of Christ? And the prophets inform us, and this is in Jeremiah, it's in Ezekiel, where Yahweh had promised to cleanse the children of Israel from their sins. And he would cleanse them from all their sins in all the places where he had, they had sinned against him. So, Yahweh promised to cleanse Israel of their sins. That is what God had cleansed in Acts chapter 10. There's nothing else. There's no other prophecy of anything else that he would cleanse. He certainly didn't promise to cleanse swine so that we could eat it. <laughs> he can't. 
cleanse swine because he created it to be unclean. Swine is not a candidate for cleansing. The passage is not talking about animals. It's only using certain animals as symbols for men because, as Peter was raised in Judaism, the Judeans considered unclean or like swine anyone who was not circumcised and kept the laws of Moses. So none of these scattered Israelites from, from the 8th and 7th centuries BC were ever circumcised or kept the laws of Moses after the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities, except for those of, of the Babylonian captivity who stayed in close proximity to Babylon and in Colossiria and in Northern Arabia, those captives, they did keep the laws. That's why Peter was the apostle to the circumcised, to go to those people. And at the end of his first epistle, we see that he is writing from Babylon. That's where he was because he was the apostle to the circumcised according to Acts chapter 14, where Paul was the apostle to the uncircumcised. If Peter ever wrote any epistles to the Jews or James, we don't have them, and why would the Jews care to preserve them, hating Christ? But we have these epistles, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and James, because they're not written to Jews. They're written to the elect sojourners. They're written to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. That's why they survived to us today. Because they weren't written to Jews. They were written to Christians who treasured them and kept them. I don't know if that makes sense. It's another... Yeah, it makes you wonder who, who went round and gathered it all. It must have just been gradual, right? The churches gradually combined everything into one homogenous Bible, right? Well, well, right. They wrote, they combined all the, all these writings into one in, into one book, and as they did that, while they may have maintained the writings themselves the best they could, there is no um, explanatory prefaces detailing the historical context of the writings. So we have to go back and search the scriptures and search history and understand the historical context to these epistles. And much of that is expressed in the epistles themselves if we would only accept the language that the apostles used. A parepidemus is not merely a stranger. And you cannot call a person in his own land a parepidemus. When you're in that person's land, you're the parepidemus. <laughs> if you come to my land, how do you call me a sojourner? You're the sojourner, right? So, so how is Peter using this term to describe these people? And the rest of his epistle explains that that these are indeed people who descended from the ancient children of Israel, occupying lands given to other Genesis 10 nations originally. So they are the 
they can be, in that context, described with that term parepidemus. But in the Judeo-Christian understanding, it's not right to describe them with that term. But Peter did describe them with that term. So how is it right? Well, the historical context tells us how it's right. But the church can't explain how it's right. If they tried, they would only stumble over themselves, contradict other scriptures, and, and let be proven faulty again. Okay. And this uh, next passage really shows that they're the Israelites, right? Absolutely. Without a doubt, you cannot read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 and come up with any other valid conclusion. No way. Impossible. <laughs> I'm sorry. You would have to be a... You, you, it, it is sheer arrogance to try to come up with another valid conclusion after we explain these passages. It would be sheer arrogance. And, and yet, you know, if you're thinking that Peter used this term parapidemos merely of a stranger who is someone of another race or nation, that's arrogant because it's contrary to the natural meaning of the word and the way that all of the classical Greek writers had used the word. So you're imagining Peter to be speaking a different Greek from the Greeks. That's what they do. Father doesn't mean father. Um, race doesn't mean race. Son doesn't really mean son. It could just be a believer. Um, a father is just someone you follow. And race just means a generation. Everybody living at the same time. Everybody on the earth living in the same time as a generation. No, that's wrong. And, and that's not how these terms were used in Scripture. That is the essence of Platonism, Neoplatonism, and Gnosticism, that these terms can be spiritualized and mean something other than what they really do. When Peter and, and the other apostles clearly use these words according to their plain literal meanings. So if the plain literal meaning exhibits the fulfillment of prophecy, why do we need these spiritual meanings that are contrary to the words of the prophets? Absolutely contrary. Which God are you going to follow? That's what it comes down to. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, addressing those same people, those sojourners in, in Anatolia, but you are a chosen generation. Note that the word for generation is singular. It's singular in the Greek as well. A royal priesthood, a holy nation. Notice that the word for nation is singular. A peculiar people. And notice that the word for people is singular. And this is important in Greek because the Greeks never considered people of diverse nations to be people, singular. Never. That's why they use the word ethnos in the plural to refer to the, the nations. When there were people of diverse ethnic groups, 
present together in one place. That's why the apostles and the Greeks as well use the term ethnos in the plural to describe them because they weren't a singular people. But here Peter uses the word singular, the, the word laos in the singular. So they must be all of the same nation. And Peter uses the word nation in the singular, where he says holy nation. So all these scattered sojourners are one nation. Exactly. So they have to be, as you just said, one race of people. Exactly. And they couldn't be a bunch of people of different races being collected into one body because none of these terms would fit. None of these terms were ever used to describe such an entity. Never. Not even in the, in the scriptures. The use of the word tone ethnone, that Paul was the apostle to the ethnos in the plural, contradicts that thought here, that a bunch of Christians from different races could be a holy nation. The language of throughout Paul's epistles contradicts that, because even Paul, saying there's one body of Christ, said that that body of Christ was made from many nations. So we have to find people who were one nation and many nations at the same time. And only the historical record can demonstrate that. A peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, something I didn't put in, in, my, um, in my notes, my preparatory notes, something else I should say, right, that I did not include in my preparatory notes in, in this um, presentation is the fact that it was the children of Israel who were prophesied to be in darkness and to be called into light in the gospel of Christ, in prophecies, in messianic prophecies of the gospel of Christ, in the passage in, in Isaiah, for instance, in, um, in Isaiah chapter 29, which is also a messianic prophecy, and it says in verse 18, and in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness, and that's a prophecy for the children of Israel. Again, in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 7, in reference to the Israelites of the Old Testament, behold my servant, Jacob is my servant in Isaiah chapter 41, 43. Now we're in Isaiah chapter 42. To, in, in reference to that same servant, to open the blind eyes and to bring out the prisoners from the prison. Who is the prisoners from the prison? J Isaiah was writing this right after the children of Israel were taken into captivity by the Assyrians. All the Israelites and most of Judah were taken into Assyrian captivity. Only the inhabitants of Jerusalem remained. And that is precisely when Jeremiah is writing this. And he's promising a reconciliation with their God at some point in the future as they had just been sent into captivity.
to open the blind eyes to bring out the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. And this is a promise to those same children of Israel that had just went into captivity. So Peter knows exactly what he's saying here in his first epistle. First, Peter was making this statement in regard to a particular people who were dwelling in the first century in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynian. These were Roman provinces, and they were populated by Romans, Greeks, Galatahi, and, and Scythians, but more anciently also by Lydians, Phoenicians, Thracians, Persians, Assyrians, and possibly even some remaining Hittites. Not all of these groups were the subjects of the promises made to the children of Israel, but those which dominated the region at the time, the Romans, the Dorian and Macedonian Greeks, the Galatahi and the Scythians, certainly all did descend from the ancient Israelites, which is demonstrable in history and in scripture. All of these provinces were culturally Hellenistic at this time. They had all been Hellenized so that they all shared um, Greek and, and later Roman culture and the Greek language. But next, how could Peter have regarded any particular Christians as a chosen generation? And think about that. If Peter was merely referring to all of the Christians living in those provinces as he wrote, and they were a chosen generation, then how could there ever be any other chosen generations if their generation was chosen? It makes no sense whatsoever to think in this passage that a generation is all the people living at a period of time. Because when they're all dead, who's chosen? Where does it speak about a chosen generation in the prophets? The word genos means race, stock, or family. So that interpretation in the King James Version is quite ridiculous, as there is nothing in Scripture which says that people can somehow become chosen by somehow choosing God. Christ told his apostles, his own apostles in John chapter 15, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and I have chosen you out of the world. Then, even if some people in each province were Christians, how could they be a chosen generation apart from all others who were alive at that same time and place who were not Christian? Or how could they be a chosen generation apart from Christians who lived in other places? So the word generation, as we understand it today, cannot be a proper interpretation of genos in that chapter. But if they were of different races, neither could Peter have called them after the singular form of the word genos. And even if some people in each province were Christians, how would that make them a holy nation if they were of all different nations? And why did the King James Version not translate the word ethnos as Gentile here? 
a holy Gentile. Why didn't he call them a holy Gentile? It translates ethnos as Gentile in a thousand other places. According to Liddell and Scott, ethnos was used after the time of Homer to describe a nation or people. And here it is in the singular. So it cannot describe people of diverse nations. And merely professing a belief in Christ does not make inhabitants of different regions to be of the same nation or people. And to prove that, in the Revelation, as well as in the epistles of Paul, we are informed that Christians belong to many different nations. But Christians of many different nations never became of one nation. They may have been one body in Christ, but they were never described or were said to have become of the same nation simply because they're Christians. That's not possible. That defies the meaning of the word nation or ethnos. But here Paul, here Peter says that they are a holy nation. And how does that happen? And as an aside, as a digression, examining 2 Peter chapter 2, which we're going to speak more of soon, he spoke of certain men who are natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. And he called them spots and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. He was speaking of men of a different race and nation who had no possibility of repentance or conversion to Christianity, even if they were feasting with Christians. So he described them as having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, a heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children, while he compared them to the error of fornication with which Balaam had advised the Moabites to entice the children of Israel. Peter could only have been describing the Edomite Judeans as opposed to the Israelite Judeans, who were also found in many places in the Roman world and who were infiltrating and corrupting Christianity through Judaism as Paul had often described, especially in his epistle to the Galatians. It sounds like he's talking from experience as well, that he's observed this behavior over the few decades. Just like if you live in a neighborhood and, uh, you know, a few niggers move in, you see very quickly that the neighborhood starts to decline. Or in your workplace, if a few are trained up, how they need all this special attention and it drains the workforce and resources that uh, a few years you'd start to observe this and think, well, exactly what Peter just say, you'd make those exact same comments, right? Well, right, exactly. And Peter had experience with the Judaizers in Antioch. So he must have reflected on that. And on, on, on Paul's words, as Paul explained, he had to reprimand Peter for that. In, in in Galatians chapter 2. So yes, Peter did have that experience, exactly. 
That's a very good remark. I'll probably add it to the notes. <laughs> there is only one manner in which these people of diverse regions and tribes could be one holy nation and one chosen race. And that is that they were all descended from the ancient children of Israel. Because people of diverse regions and tribes in the Greek world, even if they all had the same belief, and they did, all the pagans had, by law, all the pagans of scattered throughout the Roman world, everywhere that Rome ruled, all the pagans had to make observances to the Roman Caesar to take vows and oaths of allegiance and make sacrifices to Caesar. That's why Christians were being killed by the Romans at Jewish instigation, of course, but Christians were being killed by the Romans because, upon converting to Christ, they refused to make sacrifices to an idol or to a man. So they would no longer sacrifice in the temples to Caesar, and for that, they were being executed because they, they, they professed Christ as their legitimate king and as their god. That was the reason for the, the, the primary reason for the persecution of Christians was they refused to go along with the Roman government and commit idolatry with them. Even when all the people of diverse races and nations within the Roman Empire, and I use the term race there narrowly because the Greeks saw race as even divisions within the same nation, even if they were all sacrificing to Caesar, they weren't considered one nation or, or one people. That was never the case in, in Greek and Roman classical or secular writing. Peter could not have used the terms in that sense. And the proof of that is that Paul went on to speak of races and nations throughout his entire body of literature, throughout all the epistles that he produced. And then Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, is illustrating the importance of Paul's teachings, that even admitting that they were difficult to understand. So Peter's not going to break from them if he illustrates their importance. He's not going to contradict them. So Christians don't become one nation and one people simply by some profession of some belief in Jesus. That doesn't make them one race, one nation, and one people. So the only manner where they could be considered one race, one nation, one people, and one chosen race at that is if they were all descended from the ancient children of Israel. In that manner, they are also the royal priesthood and peculiar people described in Exodus chapter 19, the same language Peter used here, where we read in verse 5 of Exodus chapter 19, Now therefore, Yahweh addressing the children of Israel, if you will obey my voice indeed, Peter is calling these people to obedience and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people a peculiar people, which Peter writes here, for all the earth is mine, 
and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests. Now that's the Masoretic text. And a holy nation, the same phrases which Peter uses here. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, Yahweh instructing Moses. Moreover, using the term royal priesthood here, rather than kingdom of priests, as we read in the King James Version, Peter was following the Greek Septuagint and not any Hebrew text, where in the Septuagint, in that same place, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, we see we don't see the phrase kingdom of priests. We see royal priesthood using the exact same phrase and spelling as we see in Peter's Greek here in this epistle. So Peter was following the Greek Septuagint when he wrote this. And not the Masoretic text that the King James Version is based on. And he uses those same phrases peculiar people, royal priesthood, holy nation, in reference to his writers, if they, as he had said in chapter 1, were obedient to Christ. Just like Yahweh tells the children of Israel here, if they are obedient to him, that's what they will be. Well, now turning to Christ, they are finally demonstrating their obedience according to the words of the prophets. This is that this should be um, basic elementary Christianity. This is the ABCs of Christianity, except that the churches have twisted and corrupted all the translations and teach a different gospel, a universal salvation gospel that Peter is not teaching. And we yet have more proof of that, which we will present here. And uh, I was just going to say today that the same message rings true, that you'd want people to understand this, that, uh, okay, like French and English, we're the same race. You know, we're all Israelites, even though they might disagree that they're not like the English, that this this same message rings true, that you'd want us all whites to understand this, that we're the same people against a common enemy, right? Absolutely. And we still are to this day, even though we have many more further, deeper divisions among us, all of the surviving whites today had, at least for the most part, descended from the ancient children of Israel. Now, there are some Jepethites among us, and, and that is um, discussed in other prophecies, such as Genesis chapter 9, um, Jepeth will dwell in the tents of Shem. It's plausible that there are still some Jepethite and Hamitic lines among us, but the preponderant population of, of Europe has descended from the ancient children of Israel, from tribes descended from the Israelites, the, the Scythians, the, the Cimmerians, or, or Galatahi, or whatever you want to call them, Celts and the ancient Phoenicians and Romans and Greeks. Even to a greater extent than we realize we're descended from them. So in this regard, we must also discuss 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, which in the King James Version reads, which in times past were not a people, but are now the people of God, 
which had not obtained mercy. Right there, that's a red flag. Who required mercy in the Old Testament? Read the prophets. But now have obtained mercy. And here Peter was describing the Christians of those same provinces in the opening verse of his epistle, as the subject has never changed. But how could people not be a people? How could that be? And why is Peter even saying this as if his subjects had not always been a people or people in the sense that we understand the word people? What people could not have been a people in the past? I, I want to hear this. <laughs> you, this can't be answered except in the context of that same Old Testament. Once we find that Peter was making a citation from Hosea chapter 1, there was only one answer to these questions, which also lies in the fact that his intended readers were descended from the ancient Israelites. And, and a Chinaman or an Egyptian cannot pick up one Peter today, honestly, and think that Peter was writing to him. How could you imagine that? He was only writing to these white Europeans of these districts of Anatolia. He wasn't writing this to anybody else. Nobody else can say, oh, I wasn't a people, but now I'm a people. Because this isn't written to them. In Hosea chapter 1, the prophet Hosea was told to take a harlot for a wife. Contrary to the law, right? Ostensibly, as an example, that Yahweh God also had a harlot for a wife, the children of Israel. And let me say that it was permissible for a man, a man of Israel, but not a Levitical priest, to marry a woman that was not a virgin. So technically, Hosea really didn't break the law, but it was certainly contrary to the custom at the time, because nobody would want a whore for a wife. So the prophet Hosea was told to take a harlot for a wife. Ostensibly, as an example, that Yahweh God also had a harlot for a wife. The children of Israel were his collective wife, and they were playing the whore. So she bore him a daughter, and Hosea was told to call the girl Loruhama, which is a Hebrew term that means no mercy. Then she bore a son, and Hosea was told to call his name Lo-Ami, which is a Hebrew term that means not my people. These were indicative of the state of the children of Israel who were going into Assyrian captivity at that same time as Hosea wrote. So we read in Hosea chapter 1 verses 8 and 9, now when she had weaned Loruhama, she conceived and bare a son. Then said God, call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. But then, in the very next verse, the one which Peter cites here in, in his second chapter of this epistle, we read a message of their ultimate reconciliation, where it says, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it 
was said to them, you are not my people. There it shall be said to them, ye are the sons of the living God. Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, Christ, and they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Jezreel is a term which means God sows. Because God promised Abraham that he would indeed be the father of many nations and that his seed would be as innumerable as the sand on the seashore. So we see a fulfillment in the scattering of Israel. We see a fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. But even though they became many nations, and Paul had his ministry to those nations, and they are the nations of the revelation that wash their blood in, in the, their cloaks in the blood of the land, wash their garments in the blood of the lamb, they are still one nation and one people. So there are many nations and they're one nation. And Peter calls them a holy nation. So, as Hosea says, in the place where it was said to the children of Israel that they were not a people because they were in captivity, that they were not the people of God because he rejected them, there it would be said to them that they are the children of God. And if one is not descended from those same ancient Israelites, then one does not have any part in Christianity. As John had explained in chapter 11 of his gospel, Christ had died to reconcile the children of Yahweh who were already scattered abroad. So we must ask, did those words in Hosea make Egyptians not a people? Or did they make Chinamen or Indians not a people? Yet neither those nor any other race were ever accounted the people or children of God, and they still cannot be accounted the people or children of God, as they are forever left outside of the context of the promises and the covenants. So it's wrong to imagine, even by Peter's language, that Christianity could be for any other people. This in turn brings us to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, the next verse, where those same two words which we discussed earlier, par epidemos and par oikos, appear together. And we shall read from the King James Version. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers, there we go again, and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Now here in this verse, the King James Version rendered paroikos as strangers. But the word parepidemos, which it rendered as strangers in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, here it's rendered as pilgrims, which is stranger even yet, right? I would render these words here as emigrants and sojourners looking at their meanings and examining the scriptural contexts. These are the same words we see in the Greek Septuagint at Genesis chapter 23, verse 4, where Abraham 
is petitioning to purchase a burial place in Canaan, in the land of Canaan. So he's in a strange place. Abraham is the sojourner and the stranger, not the Hittites that he's buying the burial place from. And it says in Brenton's Septuagint, I am a sojourner and a stranger among you. But in the King James Version, I am a stranger and sojourner with you. While it does better in the Old Testament, concerning these same words, the King James Version obscures the true meanings in the New Testament, especially here in Ephesians 2.19, where they wrongly translated paroikos as foreigner. A paroikos might be a foreigner in, his, in a different land where he's really a paroikos. And a parepidemos, as Abraham admitted, is a sojourner among the Hittites in the land of Canaan. And that's correct. But these people in Anatolia would not be parepidemos or paroikos in their own lands unless that's not their lands, unless they're Israelites in those lands. So that's how we must look at these passages in Peter. And all of the surrounding verses, as we've just explained, agree with our interpretation 100%. The denominational churches are actually ignoring, blatantly ignoring the original meanings of these terms and a proper application within this context. And then they're blatantly ignoring the fact that Peter can only be speaking about the descendants of the ancient children of Israel as he had cited Hosea chapter 1. Yeah, they make it sound like he's going to strangers and, and trying to convert people, right? Like this universal doctrine that he's just going to everybody with the gospel of Christ. Right, but that's not written anywhere in the prophets, and Peter had explained to them in chapter 1 that that their obedience and, and their reconciliation with, with God, I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, but that's the general overtone of it, it is in accord with the writings of the prophets. So I would challenge any denominational pastor or, or Catholic theologian to show me prophecies that fulfill Peter's words, aside from these prophecies, which are specifically for the descendants of the children of Israel, even after the time when they were taken into captivity. And I bet none of them could show me anything. Only Christian identity is true. And it's only true that Peter was going to one race, singular, one nation, singular, of people singular. And those terms can only apply to people who, even though they might be of different races or nations now, were all originally of one race and nation, which, according to the prophecies, became many nations, as Paul explained in Romans chapter 4, that it would be according to how it was written, thus shall thy seed be that Abraham's descendants, through Jacob, ostensibly, would become many nations. So Peter can call them one nation and one people, because at one time they were. Originally they were. 
yet they became many nations in fulfillment of the prophecies. I don't know if we have anything to add to that <laughs> or anything. Phil, I just had a a slight digression. Um, <laughs> as we're talking about like sojourners and the Genesis ten, um, you know, kind of map what what the lands, the inheritance of the other Genesis ten. When, when you look at the Arab invasions, they only managed to get as far as these Genesis ten sort of nations. Is, is there anything there? Because it's an awful coincidence that. We lost northern Africa, uh, parts of Spain, Italy, most of Greece, but we kind of kept the rest, right? And and Yahweh promised in Daniel that the lands, the 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 rock carved out of the mountain that took Rome, those nations would last forever. So I know this is a complete digression, but I was just wondering. No, actually, I, I do believe there's something there. I do believe there's something there, and that's absolutely true that the Arab incursions had only gotten as far as the limits of the ancient Genesis 10 nations. But as it says in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, when God divided those Genesis 10 nations, he left the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. In other words, there would be lands belonging to the children of Israel that are outside of the territory of those Genesis 10 nations, but that wasn't revealed. It was mentioned in Deuteronomy 32.8. In that manner, it was mentioned in 2 Samuel um, chapter 7, I think it's verse 10, where, where David is being addressed by the prophet. Samuel's already dead, so he's being addressed by the prophet Nathan, I believe. And it said that the children of Israel had another place, that it wasn't Palestine, that they would be moved to another place where they would move no more. So yes, I, I do believe that you're on the right track there, absolutely, that those lands outside that, that are being alluded to but not described are the regions of northern and Central Europe, and even land beyond that, which was reserved exclusively for the children of Israel by Yahweh God, and, and that they would never be moved from them. Now, today we're being overrun and invaded, but these lands still belong to us, and there is an entirely different um, group of prophecies that describe that. Which and also we proved, have a savior, ultimately. Yes, we have a savior. And those other prophecies also help to establish who the people of God are, that we are the Israelites of the Old Testament, without a doubt. But they should be saved for another time. That's all related to the, um, the time of Jacob's struggle and the camp of the saints, the surrounding of the camp of the saints by Satan and the invasions of the lands of the children of God described in by the enemies and, and the forces of Gog and Magog described in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. But that's a whole set of other proofs. That, that's, that's not for Second Peter or First Peter. But yeah, that's a digression. But yeah, that makes perfect sense. All of the... Um, 
Genesis 10 lands that many of the children of Israel had occupied were eventually overrun with Arabs. And when the um, Genesis 10 and Adamic nations are resurrected, they'll see what happened to their lands ultimately, right? And realize Christ is true. Absolutely. Yes, I believe so. Okay, now in light of all this, we shall discuss 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6. And I will read it from the King James Version. This is another completely dishonest translation. But they, they had to translate everything to uphold their universalism. Now in light of all this, okay, I'm sorry, I'm repeating myself. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6 from the King James. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. And, and this is actually like a blatant mistranslation. This is brazen. This is like arrogant to me, the way they translated this. It really is. The portion of this verse, which must be discussed here, is whose daughters you are as long as you do well. The King James Version has this phrase, as long as, here. This is a conditional clause, which is not found anywhere in the Greek text. The corresponding Greek text is the phrase, and I'm going to read it in spite of inflicting pain on myself and our listeners, ace, again, a theta, techna, agatho poiusahi, ace, whose, again, a theta, you have been born, that's what it means, techna, children, plural, agatho poiusahi, which is to do good. This phrase is literally only whose children you have been born to do good. That's all this phrase means. It doesn't mean anything else. A conditional statement usually includes words such as I, which means if, or de, which means but, or men, which means indeed, as combinations of these words, such as amen, I men, if indeed, or I dare, but if, right? They are conditional statements. A conditional statement would also usually, also usually include verbs of the subjunctive mood, which indicate that an action may or might or would happen if a particular condition were fulfilled, right? I might go fishing if it is not raining this afternoon. That's a conditional statement based on that condition, right? If it is not raining, right? So I would, I would in Greek, we don't have this in English. We have the word might or the word may in, in order to express it. But we don't have moods in our verbs like the Greeks did. The form of the verb alone, a gene theta, tells us its time, its mood, 
and it, its person. Time, meaning whether it's past, future, or present tense. Mood, meaning whether it's subjunctive. In other words, it might happen according to some condition, right? Or even imperative, or here, it's indicative. So that's time and mood. And then person, the ending tells us that it's second person. And then there's also a fourth element to the verb, and that's voice, if it's active or if it's passive, right? So here it's passive. Passive means that the action happens to the children, to the subject. That's what the passive voice means. And here, this verb is in the passive voice. It's not something, it's not expressing something that the children an action that the children themselves undertake. It's an action which happens to the children. And the King James Version is, its translation violates several of these, or ignores blatantly, several of these elements of this verb. This is complicated, but ancient language was a lot more complicated. Ancient Greek was a lot more complex than English was. And for that reason, it was a much more precise language in many aspects than English is. So, again, a theta is in the aorist tense, so that's a past tense, even though it indicates that the action isn't necessarily complete. It's in the passive voice, meaning that the action is happening to the subject, the children. And it's second person plural, which is in accordance with the grammar and Paul, Peter's use of it to address his readers, particularly the women among his readers, because he's talking about females. He's talking about these daughters, right? All, all of these aspects, and, and it's indicative, it's not subjunctive. So it's a plain statement. It's not expressing the possibility of a condition. So all of these aspects of the verb tell us how the verb must be understood. Or Peter would have used a different verb. And there's no conditional particles, which indicate that this is a conditional statement. So where the King James wrote, as long as you do well, you do, that would be an active sensitive verb. That's not a passive sensitive verb. This is a passive verb. It's explaining something that happened to the children or something that is done to the children, not something the children do. So that's line number one. Line number two is this phrase, as long as, which is a conditional clause that is not expressed anywhere in the Greek. Why the hell do they lie? Why do they have to invent lies? They have to invent these lies to make this passage sound universalist. Like if you do good, you could be one of Abraham's children. And that's a that's a lie. I almost want to start spouting expletives, right? I really do. I really want to go back to 1611 and choke these people that translated this like this. I really do. It just irks me. It, 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 wow, when I read this, it's like, how the hell did they do that? They're lying. They're creating lies in their translation.
Now, my translation may not be perfect anywhere in the Christogenian New Testament. It might be not perfect, but I didn't translate anything to purposely create a lie. I stayed as close to the original sense of the Greek words as I could as a man. So they created these lies in this translation. There's no conditional statement. There's no subjunctive mood. The action of do or, or again, a fete happens to them, and it's not something they do. So that's three lies in one, the translation of one single word. They lied three times. So to move on with our explanation of this, Peter is making a statement, and it does not contain contain any conditions. There is no such grammar here that indicates this is conditional, and the two verbs which appear here are of the indicative and infinitive forms. They're not subjunctive or conditional. Again, a theta is indicative, and agatho poiusahi is an infinitive. More importantly, the translation of this passage in the King James Version, translating again a theta as you do, <laughs> they're taking an indicative verb, a form of the verb ginomahi, as if it were a form of the verb aihi, I me, I'm sorry, I me, I me is to be. I me would be you are, even though I me is first person singular. The second person plural of I me would be you are. Ginomahi has a different meaning. Ginomahi means to become or to come into being. And of people, it specifically means to be born. Ludell and Scott say in part that it means, in its radical sense, to come into being, of persons to be born. And they give several examples from the Odyssey, from Herodotus, from Euripides. Of things, it means to be produced. So sometimes it, it might be to happen or to occur. But here, of course, the subject is people. And the form of the verb, being an aorist passive, and that's important, indicative, second person plural, of the people here it means you were born. Because it's expressing something that happened to you, not something that you do. Then the King James Version also attempted to cover for its errors by translating the infinitive verb to do, to do good, because agathu poyusahi means to do good. They translated that as a second person active verb. After they supplied a conditional clause that is not found in the original text. So in the making of one error, which was probably purposeful, they necessitated the creation of another error. And doing so, they began to make lies and to corrupt the original meaning of the text. Here, Peter is speaking to Christian women of those provinces to whom he had written, informing them that they had been born as Abraham's children, and more specifically as daughters of Sarah, 
and that for that reason, they were intended by their creator to do good. There is no word anywhere in the Bible about anyone being able to somehow become one of Abraham's children. And although Yahweh God may raise up children to Abraham from stones, just like the Edomites to whom John the Baptist was speaking when he said that, he was speaking to serpents, that would not make them children of the promises who come only through Jacob. So John the Baptist can say to the Edomites, oh, God could raise up children to Abraham from stones. That doesn't make the children that came from stones children of the promises. Everywhere the translators have inferred such an idea that children could somehow become a child of Abraham. It does not appear in the meanings of the original Greek terms. In Isaac, through Jacob and not through Esau, is the seed of Abraham called. So here's our reading of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. For thusly, at one time also, the holy women who have hope in Yahweh had dressed themselves, being subject to their own husbands, as Sarah had obeyed Abraham, calling him master, whose children you have been born to do good and not fearing any terror. I don't know if you have anything you might want to say to that. Yeah, it's just amazing how they have to keep when they make a mistranslation, they have to look at the following sentences and keep adjusting it to make it all kind of streamlined and make sense to what the agenda they're trying to push, right? Absolutely. So they lie about one verb and it causes them to mistranslate another verb. But if they just translate the verbs as they read and, and as the verbs originally intend and mean, that then you would come up with a whole different picture of what's being said and arrive at entirely different conclusions about what Peter is saying. And that's what we've done. And that's why the start of my own ministry was translating the New Testament for myself so that I could build a worldview based on what the Scripture says instead of bringing my own worldview to the Scripture and corrupting and perverting and twisting the Scripture to match my, my my worldview, which is what the King James translators did. It's an entirely different approach to Scripture. And when you approach the Scripture correctly, there's only one point you can arrive at, Christian identity. And the fact that these people were Israelites, and they were white. So the Israelites were white. So when we dig back through the Old Testament, we can prove that. <laughs> now we shall move on to... 2 Peter verse, chapter 1, verse 1. And, and there's only two, as far as mistranslations are concerned, there are only two passages in 2 Peter that we're going to discuss and that will conclude this portion of our discussion on Peter. One of these passages is 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. We're going to discuss it because that too is a serious mistranslation that can lead people in the wrong direction concerning many other things. But there are 
other aspects and elements of Second Peter chapter 2 overall that we're going to discuss in the near future, as we discussed <laughs> this morning, right? So beginning with Second Peter chapter 2 verse, chapter 1 verse 1, I'm sorry, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, this is from the King James Version, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And even though that translation is fair, it doesn't really express the right attitude which Peter had towards the gospel and the spreading of the gospel because it almost sounds like it upholds the fact that Christianity was for Jews and that Gentiles were added in. Am I correct in that assessment? Yeah, that's always how it kind of reads, right? Yeah, that's how they try to make it read. And as they do it, they, they purposely express it in that manner. So there's a, a little deeper meaning to some of the language here, and that's what I intend to discuss. And some of this we already discussed, but that's okay. We already discussed it in some of our digressions this evening. The Greek word lycano, lycano is Strong's number 2975. It might be pronounced lancano. Lycano is, according to Liddell and Scott, to obtain by lot, by fate, or, as the Greeks were pagan, by the will of the gods. Therefore, we, being Christians, should understand Lycano to mean, in the context of Scripture, by the will of God. There are many ways in Greek to say obtain, lambano is one of them. But here Paul uses a specific word. Lambano is actually the common verb, which means to obtain or to receive. But here Peter uses a specific word, which indicates that this particular faith being obtained was by the will of God. Since the decrees of Yahweh are spelled out in the Old Testament prophets and nowhere else, and since the Old Testament prophets tell us that this obtaining is only for the children of Israel, both the dispersed and the still circumcised, then we certainly cannot assume that Peter was including anyone else in his message here. Along with the general context, we see that this also demonstrates that Peter had written this epistle not to the Judeans, not to any of the Judeans, but to the uncircumcised, as he mentions, them that have obtained like precious faith with us. So this is, and, and since chapter 3 of Second Peter shows that he's writing this to the people of the same places to which he had written his first epistle to Peter. This is one place where, in one verse, without having to appeal to prophecy, as we did where Peter cited Hosea, 
this is one verse that proves that Peter is writing to Gentiles, to non-Judeans, and not to Jews, as the denominational churches would consider the Judeans, right? So this is an easy place to go to show that. Therefore, he must be writing to anciently dispersed Israelites, and not to Judeans who were Israelites turned Christians in these places in Anatolia. He's not writing to them. He's writing to the former pagans turned Christians that Paul and his disciples, his fellow workers, had converted. So, disciple meaning student. That's all it means. Only the children of Israel were said to receive this faith in the Old Testament prophets. And that is what this word lycano refers to here. That these people receiving the faith of Christ had obtained it according to the will of God. That will of God is expressed in the Old Testament and in those Old Testament prophets. This faith is only for the children of Israel. So this supports everything that we said about those passages we discussed in 1 Peter chapters 1 and 2. Going back to Acts chapter 10, evidently Peter did not yet have this understanding, which he certainly shows here in, two, in these two epistles. These two epistles were written 25 years after the event of Acts chapter 10. And Peter finally understands that the uncircumcised peoples of Europe and Mesopotamia, who were the children of those Israelites that had either emigrated or were deported, 700 to 1500 years before the advent of Christ, that they were still included in the covenants of Yahweh our God, and they were the beneficiaries of the cross of Christ. Ostensibly, these were all also Christians from the assemblies which Paul of Tarsus or his own disciples had founded, since at the end of First Peter chapter three, as we of Second Peter chapter three, I'm sorry, as we've said here several times, Peter underscores the importance of Paul's epistles. So this verse, I think this salutation in first in Second Peter chapter one is important in that aspect because it certainly does uphold everything we said about 1 Peter chapters 1 and 2. The language does, not the King James Version, but the Greek language. So, moving on to 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 5. There's sort of an unrelated error in translation but I felt that it was important enough to include here. I don't know if you have any comments before we begin. Yeah, is this where they, they tried to say that the eight people stepped off the ark and and that was Noah, right? One right. of the eight people when it's really the eighth person. Yeah, but it's not even Noah the eighth person. They, they've added Noah the eighth person. How could Noah be the eighth person? Because if you said eight people stepped off the ark and, and they imagine the flood to have covered the whole planet instead of simply the earth where Noah 
and his family lived and the rest of the race of Adam had lived, which is the land, that word earth meaning land. The word earth never referred to the whole planet in scripture. That there's and then they have word. to squeeze niggers into descendants of Noah. And that's what they do. And, and this translation in, in second Peter chapter two, verse five, this translation is horrible, and, and they've also created lies here, where Peter was saying something very different from the way the King James Version is translated. The King James Version reading here is absurd. Noah was not the eighth person. Will we see in the text of the King James Version that the word person is italicized? It's in italics, and therefore... It was added to the text. That's what the italics in the King James Version, the way it's published, that's what the italics signify, that that particular word is not found in the original, but they felt they had to add it to the text. Now, they do also add words that are not in italics, and, and we just saw that in, in, um, in, in discussing 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6, they added those words, as long as. They're not in the original text. That There is no way you could read the Greek and read as long as. But they're not in italics, which makes their lie even bigger, right? Because the, that, that phrase is not in italics there. So they're, by putting added words in italics... When you see words not in italics, you assume that they're in the original text. But they're added. They're not the original text, but they're not in italics. So here is our reading. I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm not ready for that yet. I'm getting behind myself, actually, and not ahead of myself. In Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5 the King James Version has, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, comma, and that word person is in italics, a preacher of righteousness, comma, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. There are other elements of Greek that are added to the text here. First, in the original Greek, in all the oldest manuscripts, there is no punctuation. There isn't even space between letters or between words. No spaces, no punctuation, all capital letters. No verse numbers, no chapters, just huge blocks of text that goes on and on and on and on. And before a translator can even translate a passage, he has to parse the text meaning that he has to determine in those big blocks of letters without spaces, he has to determine where words end, where words begin. And then when he translates, and you could tell from the grammar, when he translates, he has to determine where to put commas and periods. Even though sometimes it's subjective where a sentence starts and ends, and, and there could be diverse opinions, that is an arduous task which must be undertaken even before a translation is made. 
So there are modern um, copies of the Greek text, such as the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Greke, which make it easier for translators because they are already parsed and edited in that manner. And some punctuation is already inserted into the Greek. So when I translated the Christiania New Testament, I also examined the text from that perspective, thinking about other possibilities for other readings or other parsings of words. And, and that's a difficult and time-staking, painstaking task, right? But it must be done if you're going to make an honest trans and, and a thorough translation is to think about those other possibilities. So, so Bill, Bill, sorry, was there not even space between words? In no, Greek? no, you get to separate. The that words. must have been horrible to read then. Well, well, you know what? If you were a native speaker of the language, it would flow. But if you're not a native speaker of Greek, like I could read the New Testament Greek, so I could sit with the paragraph and parse it. But before I translate it, I almost certainly have to parse it. I mean, I could probably pick out phrases and, and maybe even sentences here and there and translate them without parsing it. But it makes it so much more difficult to read if you're not a native speaker. That's the key. If you were born with this language and spoke it and wrote it and read it all your life, that would be different. And the scribes, most of the scribes who copied manuscripts were native speakers in the early centuries. In the later centuries, it was different. I believe that's why... I wonder what um, Homer would think if you showed him modern uh, English and say, look, we have commas and periods. If you just look at you as an imbecile... He probably would look at you as an imbecile, but if you if he if you could explain to him the luxury that we have today compared to the way things were when he was writing, it was a totally different world. Uh, okay, that this is actually explained in several ancient Greek writings. Um, the one that I remember it from, I think, is found in the Greek anthology. Back in the days of the ancient writers and poets, and this would be the days of the scribes of Israel as well, right? Of Moses. The ancient Greek poets, they had to make their own paper from papyrus, or they had to make their own um, vellum that they wrote on from animal skins. They had to make their own. And usually they just used papyrus because they were writing something in order to perform it even herodotus in his histories they were written to be read in front of an audience usually by herodotus himself all the ancient tragic and epic poets wrote their poetry to be performed orally and if they recorded it on paper which they had to do if they were going to have others perform it they had to write it themselves. Well, you couldn't go to a store and buy paper. I mean, maybe later in the Roman Empire, you could buy paper. But in the early years of ancient Greece, they made their own paper by cutting and drying papyrus leaves and, and gluing them 
what with adhesives that they devised or, or putting them together somehow to make uniform sheets. And then they drew their own lines on it and wrote on lines, unless they could write in straight lines by hand, which was a very painstaking, arduous process. So they made their own paper. They couldn't just go down to the dime store and buy a sheath, a, a, a whole pack of paper like we do today or a, or a five-subject notebook or something like that. They didn't have those things. And it made it harder yeah, to kind of uh, picture and visualize what you want to say and, and kind of just write it all out in one go. Right. You couldn't like – you know, correct it and, and make notes and then rewrite it and then edit it, you know, it's a lot it's a lot harder, right? And they had to write over other words if they made mistakes or if they wanted to amend things. It it was difficult. And and there are corrected versions of ancient manuscripts. We had those corrected versions be, because they could read underneath where scribes wrote over words to make corrections or to make emendations, even if they were interpolations and not corrections and that's why they had so many marginal notes adjusting things or making noting things in the margins it, it's it, it was so expensive to create paper and they didn't have erasers back in, in those days and they had to write they, they had to create their own pencils out, out of graphite or carbon or or substances that they themselves had to go search out because you couldn't just buy a pencil in 7th century B.C. Greece, at least not in many circumstances, or in most. So it, it was a challenge writing in the ancient world. And paper was very expensive, not because it cost them money, but because it cost them a lot of time creating the paper. So in order to get as many words as possible, <clears throat> onto a piece of paper, they simply wrote in all capital letters in big blocks of text with no spaces between the words and with no punctuation. But in many ways, Greek punctuates itself with the grammar and the forms of sentences and, and the way that they use certain terms always in particular places in a sentence. So in a lot of ways, you, you can punctuate the Greek honestly without any real um, and any in, without introducing any real novelties into the text. You can punctuate the Greek, and most um, most people educated in Greek grammar would agree with most parsings. But there's always going to be little difficulties here and there. Where, where a term or a sentence might be parsed one way or another. But if you're a natural speaker, it would all just flow. Imagine a Homer or a Moses with a computer screen. <laughs> Life would have been so much easier for them. And I've had experience with that myself. Because in, in my studies for 12 years, I, I actually sat in prison with nothing but a notebook and a pencil. And that was luxurious compared to what Homer had. Or what Euripides had, I had an eraser on my pencil, and I could buy the paper. <laughs> I didn't have to go out into the marshes and harvest papyrus and dry it and cut my own. <laughs> <clears throat> so, 
So that's why they wrote the way they did. That's why they wrote things the way they did without spaces is to condense their writing to, to um, get more on a piece of paper because the paper was very valuable and difficult to manufacture. I really think in the Middle Ages, miniscule became popular and, and displaced the uncials. Miniscule is another type of Greek writing where they actually used um, of Greek manuscripts where they actually wrote in, in capital letters and small letters in, in order to determine like the first word in a sentence or proper nouns. And they had um, parsed the, that they parsed the words. And I think another reason why they began to parse the words in manuscripts with miniscule is because by the time that miniscule became popular, Greek was no longer native. It was no longer a native language to anybody outside of Greece. So, because the Roman world was, for the most part, fluent in Greek, they could write those uncials in those big blocks of text and read them. But later on, during the Middle Ages, we see the appearance of miniscule, first because society had more luxuries than the ancient world, and second because it was necessitated simply because there weren't any longer any native Greek speakers. So I think they did it because they needed to parse them. They needed to begin to parse the manuscripts. That's my opinion. I can't prove that. Okay. Back to Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5. The King James reading of this passage is absurd. Noah was not the eighth person. Where we see that the word person is italicized. But because of the way Greek was written, Greek didn't have an indefinite article. Greek only had definite articles. It had a different forms of the definite article, right? A definite article is the. If I say the book, I'm referring to a particular definite book. If I, see, if I say a book, that's an indefinite article. And I'm referring to any book. I had a book. What book isn't important? It was a book. So I had a book in my hand because there's elements of my statement that are more important. Having a book in my hand is not important which book I had, right? So I'm not referring to the book. I'm referring to an indefinite object, just a book. So here, because Greek had no indefinite articles, the translator has to assume where they belong within the context of a statement. So the indefinite article, A, A preacher of righteousness, it was added to the text here. And, of course, the commas were also added, because none of them appear in the original manuscripts. Furthermore, the Greek word here, which is translated eighth, the Greek word agdoas, is an ordinal number. It's not a cardinal number, which would be octo. So it is not talking about how many people were saved in the flood. 
as the translators and many more commentators have errantly assumed. Dropping the added words and punctuation, the text clearly states that Noah was the eighth preacher or proclaimer of righteousness. The words proclaimer and eighth are both in the accusative case and the adjective modifying the noun. Therefore, two, the two must be understood as a unit. In other words, eighth is an adjective. It's not a noun by itself. You could say an eighth and use it as a noun. But here in Greek, it's an adjective modifying another noun. And it's not modifying the word translated as preacher. The fact that they are both in the accusative case and that they are in accompaniment here proves that eighth is an adjective modifying the noun for preacher. So they have to be understood as a unit. They can't be separated into two separate ideas. Noah is the eighth preacher or proclaimer of something, which Peter says here is of righteousness. So he's the eighth preacher of righteousness. Now it is important to show what preacher of righteousness could mean. So let's begin by counting patriarchs from Adam. First it was Adam, then it was Seth, then Enos, that's three, then Canaan, and Mahaliel, Jared, and Enoch, that's seven, then Methuselah, then Lamech, and then Noah, that's ten. And Abel isn't counted because even though he was a firstborn, he was never a patriarch. He didn't outlive his father. So, since Enoch and Lamech Enoch and Lamech were also both outlived or outlasted on earth by their fathers. Enoch was taken by God when he was 360-something years old, and Lamech died before his father, Methuselah. I believe he died five years before Methuselah. So they never fulfilled the role of a living head patriarch. And therefore, there were only eight descendants of Adam who served as the eldest living males of the line down through Noah. Eight descendants and Adam, I should say. Seven descendants from Adam. There, there was Adam was first, and then there was Seth, and then Enos, and then Canaan, and then Mahaliel, and then Jared, but not Enoch. And then Methuselah, but not Lamech, and then Noah. So I should say eight descendants with Adam, or seven descendants and Adam, who served as the eldest living males of the line down through Noah. So Noah would be the eighth patriarch. Therefore, that must be what the term preacher of righteousness had meant. 
And of course, Cain was discounted also, as he was a patriarch of the serpent seed rather than Adam's, and he can never be righteous. So the Greek of this verse must be read. And he did not spare the old society, but he had kept Noah, the eighth proclaimer or preacher of righteousness, having brought a deluge upon the society of the impious. And this is the only way that Noah could be the eighth of anything. There's no other way that Noah could be the eighth of anything. He certainly wasn't the eighth person on the ark. He was the first person on the ark. If we count down the eldest living sons of the Adamic line from Adam to Noah, then we can see what Noah was the eighth of. And this also shows that Cain was discounted from Adam's genealogy, as he was not a true son of Adam. Why wouldn't he be counted? And if he's counted, we don't come up with eight. Or if he's counted, we can include Seth. And if we can include Seth, then we can include Seth's sons. It's one or the other. It can't be both. So likewise, we see in the epistle to Jude that we're going to discuss here shortly also, that Enoch was seventh from Adam. And Jude must be referring to something different. He must be referring to men who were the eldest living sons, but not the eldest living patriarchs. And we'll save that for a discussion of Jude. As in either place, it's proven that Cain is discounted even before a need for such counting was ever considered. So that passage in 2 Peter 2.5 does not mean that Noah was the eighth person on the ark. It doesn't mean that there were eight people on the ark. A lot of translations lead you to believe that. For instance, I'll read the North American Standard Bible. I don't know what Bible you were following to think that it said eight, but there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of translations of Second Peter chapter two verse five, which lead one to think that it was speaking about eight and not eighth. And one of them is the North American Standard Bible, where it says, "But preserve Noah." a preacher of righteousness, with seven others. So how is that even a translation? With seven others assumes that eighth refers to the number of people on the ark. But how is Noah counted the eighth person? When are sons put in front of a father in precedence? Not only sons, but their wives also. Where do we see that in Scripture? That's an assumption of translators who simply happen to be wrong. Because eighth here and preacher cannot be separated grammatically, even if they're not together in the Greek text, which is often the case. Agdoas is eighth. It's not eight. And it's an accusative masculine singular and Kerux is also an accusative masculine singular. So Agdewus and Kerux, when we translate the passage into English, cannot be separated. And they are both the objects of the same verb. 
the verb saved here. Noah is also accused of masculine singular. But of course, righteousness is genitive and it's feminine. So Noah is the eighth proclaimer of righteousness, those accusative masculine singular nouns and adjectives being connected in the Greek grammar can't be separated into multiple different ideas. They can't be. They have to be translated in a manner that is faithful to their grammatical forms in Greek. That's complicated, but that's the only right way to do it. Noah is the eighth preacher of righteousness. That's the only way to read that passage, honestly. And it reaffirms the patriarchy, right? That Noah, by birth, was the, the leader just because he was the oldest male. Absolutely. And he would be naturally the leader of his own family and the patriarch of his own family, which is the only family that survived the flood in that land where the flood occurred. Because it didn't cover the whole planet. Nowhere in the Hebrew is that ever suggested. And subsequent chapters of Genesis prove that it did not cover the whole planet because there are still giants in the earth. There are still descendants of Cain. There are still other people who aren't even mentioned or who don't even have a part in, in the descendants of Adam, but who were mentioned in Genesis chapter 15. People like the Zuzim who are roving creatures mentioned in Genesis chapter 14. So, it's just a place that not only helps to establish the racial message of Scripture, but that upholds the patriarchy of, of the Bible, which is found all throughout the Bible, and gives us insight into the fact that Noah was the eighth of something, and we have to look at what he was the eighth of. And he was the eighth preacher of righteousness in a tradition that was actually broken in the time of Abraham, when Abraham was called out from that Genesis 10 world because they had all gone off into sin. They were all pagans. Abraham's own fathers were pagans. And he was distinguished and told that his seed, his children, would inherit all those other nations. So here in 1 Peter chapter 1, it goes back around and we see that Peter was addressing Israelites who had inhabited lands that originally belonged to some of those other nations that Abraham was promised that his seed would inherit. And they did. And that's why Peter was writing to them. And they were Israelites. And the promises in Christ were for them and for them alone. All right. And then um, next week we can get on to Jude and James, right? But more of a discussion of their subject, of their epistle. Yes, there's a, there's a couple of mistranslations in James that I, I would like to discuss that I think are important to discuss. There really aren't any in Jude or any more important to our subject matter here, right? Or in Peter, there are some misunderstandings in Jude and Peter, but it's better to speak about them in in, in Second Peter chapter two, in particular. But Jude and Second Peter chapter two, 
are both basically explaining the same phenomenon. So they should probably be discussed in succession in that perspective rather than from this one. So before we start that, there'll be a couple of mistranslations in James that I would like to discuss. And there'll also be a good introduction to the passages, the resulting passages that we want to discuss found in 2 Peter chapter 2 and in Jude, which Jude is only really one chapter. Okay, and, and that'll set us off on a new course of these 100 proofs. <laughs> yeah, slight change of subject. But, um, but yeah, that's brilliant. Praise Yahweh. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European race. Thank you.